Let's pray and we'll ask God for his help. Heavenly Father, help us to see truth from your word this morning. Uh, give us minds able to absorb this truth and give us hearts willing to change and to live in love for you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. My guess is that you woke up this morning in a nice, comfortable bed. Sorry if you were in trouble and on the couch or out of the doghouse, but, but probably most of us woke up in comfortable beds. Let me ask you a question. Who gave you that bed? Where, where did it come from? Ours was a wedding present. My parents gave us money and we went to Freedom Furniture 25 years ago and bought it. I take it this morning you then put on some clothes. Who gave you those clothes? Carmelina bought me this shirt, these pants. Shoes and the belt I bought myself with, with money that I earned from working, working here at church. Parents, I, I guess you then woke up your children. Who, who gave you those children? I won't give you details about how we got ours, suffice to say it was the normal way. Uh, what, 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 uh, what, what, what came next? Did you have breakfast? Who gave you the food? Who gave you the, the cutlery and the bowls? Who gave you the kitchen? Who gave you the, the house with the kitchen in it? Our breakfast came from Aldi and from Coles. Bought it with money that I earned. I come in and bought the bowls. The, the cutlery was a wedding present from my grandparents. Uh, the kitchen is provided along with the house by you as part of my stipend. What happened next this morning? Did you turn on the TV? Who gave you that TV? Did you look at your phone or your computer? I suspect most people did in an addictive kind of a way. Uh, who gave you your phone and your computer? Uh, did you then get into your car? Who, who gave you that car? Who, who, who paid for the petrol? Do you see the questions I'm asking? Who gives us all our stuff? Who provides for us? Now, hopefully sitting in church here this morning, uh, you're thinking in your head that the answer is God. God gave you all these things. And spoiler alert, that's the point of the talk today. But, uh, but it's not what most people in our culture think, is it? Most people in our culture think that they provide for themselves. They would answer the questions that I've asked this morning in the same sorts of ways that I've answered them. And it's true to answer answer in that kind of way, isn't it? People think that they've earned what they have by their hard work. They would say, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Of course, there's some truth to that way of thinking. And you know what? I suspect it's not just out there that people think this way. I suspect that we have bought into our culture's way of thinking we say we believe, at least sitting in church, we say that we believe that God gives us everything, but I'm not sure it's what we believe deep down. Deep down, I suspect, we think that we provide for ourselves. We've studied hard to do well in school and university. We've got good jobs. We, we work hard on our jobs. We earn good money. We, we're wise about how we, how, how we spend and how we invest and how we save. And we buy ourselves with our money that we earned what we need or what we want. We provide for ourselves. It seems self-evident to us. 
We think that we can control the world in such a way that we can give ourselves what we need, we can give ourselves what we want. If we need it, we have the capacity to buy it or get it. Deep down, we think we provide for ourselves. But did you know, our way of thinking and our culture's way of thinking, it's actually very uncommon. Very few people think this way. In most societies, in most times in history, people have realised that they don't actually have much control over life at all. Just think about agrarian societies, for example. In an agrarian society, people plant seeds, but they realise that if they're going to get a crop, they rely on a whole heap of things that they cannot control. They need wind and rain and sun. They need to avoid weeds and bugs. In that kind of society, it's obvious. You don't have much control at all. You're at the mercy of all kinds of forces. And so, most people in most societies, in most times in history, have not pretended that they've got things under control. No, most people in most societies and cultures, they've turned to religion for their provision. They've called on a god or gods to provide them with what they need. And that was certainly true of the nations that surrounded Israel in the time of One Kings. Now, in our studies in One Kings, we've been following, do you remember, the dynasties of Israel? Well, now it's the year 874 BC. You may remember that General Omri had been the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Well, now Omri dies and his son Ahab becomes king. Ahab is not a worshipper of the Lord. Ahab gets Israel to worship Jeroboam's golden calves. But even more than that, he marries the princess of a place called Sidon. She is a woman called Jezebel. And following his wife, Ahab becomes a worshipper of the gods Baal and Asherah. Now, let me give you a bit of background about these gods, Baal and Asherah. Baal had been worshipped in Canaan and Phoenicia for hundreds of years, and he was the storm god. People believed that Baal was the god who brings rain and dew. Of course, for a subsistence agriculture community, rain is vital. It's critical. Rain brings life. Rain brings fertility. Rain brings food. Now, of course, in the Near East... Uh, There are dry seasons each year. And according to legend, that was because Baal was locked in constant mortal combat with the god Mot. Uh, Mot was the god of death and sterility. Each year in this conflict, Baal was defeated and he had to submit to Mot and go to the underworld, to the place of the dead. He had to die, basically. That's what brought dry seasons. Baal in the underworld. Baal dead. But then each year, the god Anat would defeat Mot and raise Baal back to life. Baal would be resurrected each year. And that's what would bring back the seasons of rain and fruitfulness. Baal being back on earth, alive again. Uh, People relied on Baal to provide for them. And so they worshipped Baal. Uh, Baal was worshipped by offering sacrifices, mostly animal sacrifices, but also child sacrifices. And uh, worshippers would also engage in ritual sexual practices to encourage Baal to bring fertility. Uh, Asherah 
Asherah was a goddess. Some believe she was the mistress of Baal. She was also a goddess of fertility. She was depicted as a nude woman, often pregnant and with big breasts to show her fertility. And again, people looked to Asherah to provide for them. And she was worshipped with sacrifices and with ritual sexual activity. Baal and Asherah were worshipped in places like Sidon, Jezebel's country. But now here in the book of Kings, King Ahab brings this worship to Israel. 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 29. Have a look with me. 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that's the golden calves, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. In the very last part of the chapter is an interesting little section, but what it probably means is that we see that there is even child sacrifice in Israel, in the rebuilding of the city of Jericho. Things have really gone awry. So here's the scene. King Ahab says that Baal is the God who provides for Israel. Baal is the God who gives them rain. Baal is the God who gives them crops. Baal is the God who gives babies to them and to their animals. Baal is the God who gives them everything that they have. But then, totally out of nowhere, in chapter 17, we meet a man. His name is Elijah. And Elijah makes a very, very interesting announcement. He says that he represents the Lord... And he says, there will be no rain except when he says so. Chapter 17 and verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. With our background in mind, can you see what he's doing? This is a direct challenge to Baal. Baal is the storm god. Baal is the god who brings rain. But Elijah is saying, no, no, no. The Lord is the one who controls the rain. And what Elijah says happens. There's a terrible drought. Initially, God sends Elijah into hiding to a place outside Israel called Kerith Ravine. And there... God provides for Elijah, miraculously. Verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kerith Ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerith Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook. God provides. After a while, the brook dries up. And God sends Elijah, notice this, God sends Elijah to Sidon, to to the homeland of Queen Jezebel. 
God sends Elijah to the heartland of Baal worship and there again there is drought and there again God provides for Elijah. Verse 7. Sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And please, bring me a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Again, God provides, even in Sidon. While Elijah's in Sidon, a terrible thing happens. The son of the widow dies. But in another miracle, an extraordinary miracle, Elijah raises him to life. Don't forget the background here. Baal is the one who's supposed to be resurrected every year. Baal is the one who's supposed to be able to bring life and and bring fruitfulness. Baal is the one who's supposed to defeat death. But here, right in the heart of Baal's so-called land, it's the Lord who brings resurrection and life. And the widow acknowledges that Elijah tells the truth about the true God. Verse 17. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God. And that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. All right. Look, you see what's here in these chapters. Uh, King Ahab marries the princess of Sidon. They implement the worship of Baal and Asherah. They say Baal and Asherah are the ones who provide for Israel. But Elijah brings a different message. He says there'll be no rain unless the Lord says so. And then the Lord provides for Elijah. 
Kereth Ravine, outside the Promised Land, even in, even in Sidon, the, the, the Lord is the one who provides. He provides for Elijah and the Lord gives resurrection in the land of Sidon. And so can you see the point of the chapters? It's actually a pretty simple point, isn't it? The Lord is the one who provides. Not, not Baal, not Asherah, the Lord. Do you know what, friends? The Lord provides you with everything you have as well. It's not Baal or Asherah or Buddha or Muhammad or anybody else. Israel were wrong to rely on idols. But more than that, it's not you yourself either. You know, I reckon we're pretty good at theology when it comes to questions of salvation, questions of religion. We know, we're convinced, we hear it week after week that we can't earn our place in heaven. We know that we're saved by Jesus and not by our good works. We know that it's through Jesus that God provides us with forgiveness and salvation. But you know what, friends? It's not just true of salvation. It's not just true of Sunday stuff. It's true of every aspect of our lives. Your life is nowhere near as under your control as you may think. It is God who gives us all of our stuff, our beds, our clothes, our food, our cars, all of it. In fact, we rely on God for every breath we take, for every brain cell, for everything. We are just wrong to rely on ourselves. But more than that, when we do, we are just as much idolaters as Israel were under Ahab. If we think we provide for ourselves, we are just as much idolaters as Israel were here in Kings. Something that's easy to forget, though, isn't it? When when you're prosperous and everything seems to be under control. And you know what? God spoke to Israel a bit about this very thing. He said, once you're prosperous, you might be tempted to forget this simple truth. The simple truth, God says, that I give you everything. On your outline there, top right-hand side, I've put this, uh, these couple of verses from the book of Deuteronomy, I reckon it's incredibly modern. for something that's written a few thousand years ago. God says to Israel, when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Is this what's happened to you? Have you fallen into this trap? Have you forgotten that everything you have and everything you are comes to you from God? How would you know? How could you kind of diagnose this problem 
in yourself? How could you tell if deep down you're, you're relying on you rather than on God? To conclude, I, I want us to think about three contrasts. Three contrasts that might just reveal who we're really relying on. You can see them on your outline. The first contrast is this. It's the contrast between thanks and pride. Uh, the New Testament says this. I've put this on your outline from 1 Timothy. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. A little bit earlier in Timothy it says this, on your outline again, everything God created is good and nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. You see the contrast? If we believe God is the one who provides, how will we feel? Thankful. Grateful. Kind of humbled. We will say, thanks God. Not just as a kind of a, a, a ritual after meals or before meals or something, we will actually genuinely say, thank you. But if we believe we're our own provider, well, we'll feel a bit proud of what we have. Arrogant, as it says in that first passage. So which is it for you? Thankful or proud? I know for me it's a, it's a bit of a mixture. Um, I, I, I do genuinely feel grateful to God. I feel grateful for the country that he's put me in. I couldn't control that. I feel grateful for the parents he gave me. I couldn't control that. I feel grateful for my education and grateful for good health. For, grateful for, as it says there in Deuteronomy, the ability to produce the, the wealth and the family that I, that I have. But I have to admit, I do also feel a bit proud, a bit arrogant about who I am and what I have if I compare myself to people as if I'm a bit superior to other people who haven't got what I've got. Comes out just in subtle ways. It's pretty well hidden. Definitely there, though. How about you? Does your pride in yourself, in your stuff, in your career, in your children, does your pride reveal that you think you've provided for yourself? Or can you see real evidence in your life of gratitude to God as provider? Here's the second contrast. It's a tough one. It's the contrast between prayer and anxiety. Now, the New Testament says, there on your outline, do not be anxious about anything. That's a command from God. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. It makes sense, doesn't it? If we believe that God is our provider, we'll pray. We'll ask God for what we need. But if we believe that we're our own provider, what will we do? Stress. Worry. So which is it for you? Do you pray? Or do you stress? It's 
bit of a litmus test, isn't it? Not one that I pass very well at all. My anxiety reveals my idolatry. My prayerlessness reveals my unbelief, my failure to trust in God as provider. Here's the third and final contrast. Contrast number three. Uh, the contrast between Sabbath and overwork. Now, don't, don't get me wrong, don't hear me wrong here. I, I believe that the Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus. I, I don't think you have to have Saturday off or, or Sunday for that matter. But I still think the principle of Sabbath is important. If we believe that God is our provider, then we will work diligently. We'll, we'll work diligently just as he commands us to. But if we believe that God is our provider, we will also be able to stop. We'll also be able to rest. To to take out time to worship God without checking the telephone. If we believe that God is the provider, then we'll be able to stop and spend time with God family and and enjoy the life that he provides because it's not actually down to our work ultimately anyway. But if we believe our own provider, we will just work and work and work and we will never get off our telephones and we will work and we will work and we will work. Good on you for being here today. Well done. I haven't heard one telephone ring in this entire time because you all got it on silent. (laughs) But it required faith in God for you to be able to stop work and dedicate time to him. Good on you. Still worth reflecting on on that, don't you think? If you trust God to provide for you, it'll show in your patterns of work and rest and worship. Do you get the contrasts? I think they're actually quite revealing, aren't they? Gratitude versus pride. Prayer versus worry, Sabbath versus constant work. Friends, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ richly provides us with everything. It doesn't come from Baal, it doesn't come from Asherah, it doesn't even come ultimately from ourselves. It's all a gift from God. Let's humbly, thankfully trust him and live for him. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we, we know we actually... <laughs> don't have things anywhere near as under control as we like to pretend. We're sorry for our idolatrous view that we provide for ourselves. Sorry for our stress and anxiety, sorry for our prayerlessness, sorry for our arrogance, sorry for our constant harried work as if it's all down to us. Father, help us to genuinely believe that you provide for us And help us therefore to seek first your kingdom and rely on you. We pray it in Jesus' name.